Hi, my name's Amy Mazzarella. I'm a first year law student here at Southern Cross University. I chose to study law because I want to stand up for what's important and represent people whose voices need to be heard. I've also enjoyed learning from academics who are experts in their field, from ecological jurisprudence to the legalities of artificial intelligence. Today I'm excited to be interviewing Aidan Ricketts, a lecturer in our Faculty of Law who specialises in social movements and activism. Aidan is the author of The Activist's Handbook, which provides a step-by-step -step guide to participatory democracy. He's also written extensive publications about activism, social movements, critical corporations, theory and education. Welcome, Aidan. Hi. Can you start off by telling us what participatory democracy is and why it's so important? Okay, well, I think a lot of people get the idea that democracy is just like going to elections and electing politicians to parliament. Um, that's certainly an important part of how we do it. Um, in Australia because that elects our legislators. But democracy is really a 24-7, 365 day of the year operation, really, where you know citizens uh, should be both as informed as possible and as involved as possible. So participatory democracy really encompasses all the other things, um, you know, in and around that electoral process as well, things like, you know, the right to association, form trade unions, the right to strike, the right to protest, um, you know, advocacy, petitions, you know, just, just all of that. That's why we call it participatory democracy. It's, it's that right of citizens to participate in the democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Around the world, we're seeing a lot of social, political and environmental issues in the spotlight, from climate change to the conflict and unrest in Afghanistan. What role can protest and activism play in influencing social and political decisions? Well, it's... it's played a very big role and I think in order to really understand the role of protest you need to understand the role of social movements so you know protest in a sense is sometimes just the visual um, tip of the iceberg uh, underneath you know a great social movement so you know you might see a climate change protest but behind that um, you know there's a giant global complex global social movement and the interesting thing about social movements is they're not necessarily organizations they may include organisations, you know, you might have Greenpeace and 350.org or whatever, all participating in, say, the climate change movement, um, you know, school strike for climate and so on. But really, social movements are what I sort of call complex adaptive systems. They're just, you know, they are just social movements. They don't have a head office. They don't have, uh, you know, they don't have a central command. Um, you know, they're very, very sort of flexibly and horizontally organised. Um, they're, you know, effectively organised according to people uh, understanding their aims and supporting them and then becoming active. On a national level, Australians have protested against the government's stance on climate change following the recent UN climate change report. Could you tell us a bit more about what went down at Parliament House and how Prime Minister responded? Uh, yeah, um, certainly that was something I was contacted about. So uh, what you saw there, you had some, uh, I think they were Extinction Rebellion protesters uh, graffitied on Parliament House climate duty of care, which referred to a recent federal court case in which the federal court held that the uh, federal environment minister actually has a duty of care to young people, uh, um, you know, to consider climate change in all government decision-making. Um, and also somebody set fire to a pram, which was an incredibly... 
um, you know, incredibly gripping and, and, and descriptive visual, really, which, um, you know, and that's often another part of protest is having, uh, you know, really powerful and, and uh, graphic um, theatrical sort of, you know, representations. So, so those two things happened. Um, the Prime Minister sort of, uh, in his usual way, wanted to come out and say, oh, those are bad protesters and pointed to this other woman. Oh, this is the good protester. She just stands on the side of the road and holds a placard and I get to drive by and I get to wave. And uh, he was talking about a woman called Frances who, who is a determined activist and does, I think, a daily or as often as she possibly can protest outside Parliament holding up climate change messages. Um, and that, that's also fine. Interestingly, in the, you know, the original article, I think it was in The Guardian, they went and introduced, inter interviewed Francis, the good protester. She said, oh, yeah, I'm a member of Extinction Rebellion too, and I, I totally support what those other people did. That's just not what I do. So it didn't really work out that well for the Prime Minister. But I think the important thing is he was trying to, in a sense, divide and conquer and have a bad protest, a good protest, a dichotomy, you know, and that, and that doesn't really, really hold out. I mean, I, I think the, the biggest thing in Australia, though, is... And, and our social movements have been have a very good track record with this, and it, and it's nonviolence. Um, that that's a core uh, value of social movements in Australia and through most of the developed world, um, and it's a very important core value, um, and one that we have a great track record in Australia. So we have two track records in Australia. One we we have actually led the way in disruptive environmental protests, so blockades like Terania, Chalundi, uh, Daintree, and Franklin River. And, you know, and, and quite uh, developed technology for disruptive blockades like uh, lock-on devices, tripods, uh, and so on. But coupled with that, a very strong commitment to non-violence. Um, so we've seen very, uh, you know, very robust, physically disruptive blockades, but always non-violent. So what are the different types of protests and what do you think works best? Look, look, it's a big question, but in, in many ways, as, as I sort of pointed out in my conversation article, there's two ways of assessing what sorts of protest works. One is to look to history and see, well, what were the big social movements that really achieved things and did what sort of protest methods did they use? And, and when you look at that, you know, you think about the suffragettes, the civil rights movement, the Wavehill Station walk-off by Indigenous people in the 1960s, you know, the Franklin River. Uh, and all of those involved disruptive protest. Now, usually when you get to the point of having disruptive protest, and of course the Bentley blockade in, in the Northern Rivers, but normally you, you get to the point of having disruptive protest after you've already exhausted, you know, the other more conservative forms of protest. So, you know, people usually start with writing to politicians, visiting politicians, writing letters to the editor, doing petitions, uh, and if those things work, well, well and good. But when those things don't work, um, when people feel sort of routinely ignored, uh, that's when you know the idea that well, we we have to move to the next to the next level um, and involve ourselves in some some disruptive protest. Um, and so you know that's how women got the vote. That's how Australia got out of the Vietnam War. Uh, that's how we saved Southwest Tasmania, and that's how we stopped fracking in the Northern Rivers. So there's a long and proud history of that. And again, disruptive protest often involves um, unlawful activity, you know, blocking roads, locking yourselves onto things, but those are relatively minor public order offences. And part of the, the structure of non-violent direct action is that, yes, you accept that you're breaking the law, but you, you know, you behave peacefully, you accept that the police arrest you, uh, and you go to court and get whatever consequences you do. And quite often the courts are, 
reasonably lenient on nonviolent protesters because they see them as doing it for altruistic reasons um, and, you know, not trying to evade. There's no deceit involved uh, and so on. And we saw that work out very well in the Northern Rivers uh, here with the Bentley blockade, um, where, you know, not only was it nonviolent and successful, but the relationship between police and protesters was actually very highly developed and quite friendly. Do you find that a bit of a uh, an uncomfortable or confronting kind of thing as, as someone in the legal profession and the legal um, frame that you're breaking the law, like, technically through protest? Not really, because in a sense it's a little bit unavoidable because um, politicians are fond of making protest illegal. Um, you know, if we had a... We have a problem in Australia where we don't have a constitutionally entrenched Bill of Rights. We don't have any Bill of Rights effectively at the national level. And so we don't have any touchstone against which we can really define our right to protest, which means it's very, very vulnerable to being withdrawn piece by piece by piece by politicians. Um, and that's, in fact, what they've done. You know, the, the first wave of sort of laws that involve protest are generic um, public order laws. Um, you know, you, you mustn't block a road. And if you do, that's obstruction. So they're not, they're not necessarily specifically anti-protest laws in themselves. But this gets me to the, you know, the second test, um, you know, your, your question involving what kind of protest works best and how do we measure that? Well, we measure that by history. You know, what, what are the big movements that have succeeded and did they involve disruptive protest? And we've seen that. And the other one is what I described in my conversation article being the scream test, uh, how loud your opponents scream when you use a particular tactic. Uh, and this gets down to the Prime Minister. He's saying, well, we don't like you using graffiti and burning a pram in front of Parliament. Why? Because it gets noticed, because it has an effect, because people see it, because it catches media. But we don't mind you standing on the street corner with a placard because, in a sense, you're easy to ignore. Um, and so that's, again, one of the big things with disruptive protest. It's impossible to ignore because it's the stage where people say, well, you are ignoring us and we do want to stop this. And so we're going to just go and actually stop it um, as citizens. And I think the Bentley blockade's a great example of that because they were introducing fracking into the northern rivers. We had a, a, a poll conducted with the council election in Lismore in which 87% of the Lismore local government area said, we don't want fracking in our area. And the state government completely ignored that 87% and 12 days later renewed the fracking licences. It, it was at that point that the population said, well, 87% of us have voted and we've been ignored. We are the majority and so we will have to move to direct action. And, and that's exactly what they did. And it was ultimately successful because it was just so much of the community was involved. So uh, so how do we know what's been working? Well, we know that these things have been working because there's been a, an incredible rush of anti-protest laws um, since about 2014 across Australia. Um, and they have pretty much coincided um, with activism against the mining industry, which is a very, very rich and powerful industry with a lot of political connections. Um, and so as you've seen communities like the Lismore community standing up against fracking and winning, you've then seen this, and, and this is on the record, I've documented this, um, you know, agreements from politicians to the mining industry to say, 
we will introduce anti-protest laws to protect you from this. And they did, subsequent to Bentley, um, increase the penalties for up, up to jail terms for interfering with fracking mining operations. Um, there was a tenfold increase in the fines for uh, trespass on a business. Uh, we've seen very draconian laws in Tasmania that were later found to be unconstitutional in the High Court. Um, we saw lock-on devices, which were being used by Extinction Rebellion and by the campaign against the Adani coal mine in Queensland, being banned by the Queensland Parliament. So, so effectively, what the screen test says is, you know, when your opponent says that's inappropriate, that's no good, we don't like it and we're going to stop it, then you must know it was working. So do you still think that it's working in the sense that you say that you judge that it's working, that they bring in new laws to stop you from protesting, but do you think that it's really bringing about change in the sense of changing climate laws and the stance on climate policy? Well, that's why I think I included the first criteria, which is look at the successful campaigns of the past that have used disruptive protest. And what we tend to see is that even if the disruptive protest um, isn't seen to achieve its outcome at the time, so the police come in, arrest people, take them away, uh, and you know the logging continues or the mining continues, um, generally, if you look a little bit after that, that's where you see the successes. So um, you know, you go back and hit, yes, we arrested the suffragettes, but eventually women got the vote across the developed world. Um, yes, you know, we, people all got arrested at the Franklin River, um, but eventually there was a change of government and a high court case and the dam was stopped. You know, the Indigenous people at Wave Hill Station who did the, you know, the, the um, walk-off in, I think, 1966 or so, as Paul Kelly says, from little things, big things grow. You know, uh, eventually, years later and after a change of government, um, the first land rights uh, legislation was introduced. So similarly, the Terrania Creek blockade in the Northern Rivers um, led to the rainforest decision a few years later. Bentley's one of the few occasions where uh, a direct action direct disruptive blockade actually achieved its outcome um, directly at the time. I think politicians uh, are very reluctant to allow protests to be seen to succeed. So they're happy to have the, you know, the, the political machinations occur after the protest has been sort of disrupted and, and they give in later. They don't like to give in at the time. But Bentley's actually an amazing example because the community, um, you know, set themselves up there. The New South Wales government was had prepared a force of 800 riot police to send to confront the Bentley blockade and they just didn't. They backed down three days before they were due to get there. Um, and so that's actually an example of the disruptive blockade actually occurring at, at the face of it and no arrests occurred. So we've also seen people protesting truck blockades and politicians butting heads in the wake of the state lockdowns and border closures, particularly here on the Queensland-New South Wales border. Did these protests prove effective from a legal standpoint? And if not, what would have been a better course of action? Okay, now we're getting to the difficult questions. I think um, the pandemic and the lockdowns, you know, present us with some very sort of complicated and intersecting issues. Um, you know, I think, you know, something, for example, like a Black Lives Matter protest is, is, is a clear traditional example of protest in which people are getting in the streets, highlighting, you know, a really important social issue that invokes uh, widely held values, you know, equality, racism, deaths in custody, things like that. Um, 
And so what marks the vast majority of protest is that it's altruistic. Whether, whether you specifically agree with the people's aims or not, um, in that instance, it's still the case that the aims of the vast majority of protests are for the greater good. You know, they're to stop climate change, they're to save forests, they're to stop deaths in custody, uh, you know, marches against rape and so on, you know, they're, they're for the greater good. Um, so one of the difficulties with some of the um, anti-lockdown protests is I think it, it's more questionable whether they're really just about individual rights um, than about the greater good. And again, that's, that's, you know, that's not hard and fast. It's not easy to be absolutely black and white with these things. I mean, people could argue that, you know, the erosion of liberty is a general issue. So it's, it's not easy to be completely definitive about that. But I think in terms of whether they're attracting public support, which you need to do in a protest uh, at some level, uh, I think one of the things they suffer from is the perception that it's just a whole lot of people complaining about their own freedom uh, and their own frustrations at lockdown, um, rather than necessarily trying to act for the greater good. And I think for a lot of people, the perception is that the greater good is in slowing down the spread of the virus so the hospitals aren't overwhelmed. So, so that's an issue for those protests. Uh, another thing that makes the anti-lockdown protests complicated is because they're not just a protest about the public health measures, they're a defiance of the public health measures at the same time. So that in itself creates an anxiety in the general population. If you have the majority of the population supporting those measures and believing that they're for everyone's protection, and then you have a small group of people flouting those measures, it again, doesn't attract public support because people see that as creating risk for others. Um, and look, there are some other problems. I mean, some of the lockdown protests have not been non-violent. Uh, some of the ones in the big cities, uh, in Melbourne in particular, that was the case. And that also is beginning to reflect the types of groups that are behind the protests. So as I said, you know, the social justice and environment movement have been the main protesters of the last 50 years in Australia, and they have a very strong track re record of holding non-violence as a value and taking that to the protests. Um, the people who are now protesting, you know, the various groups protesting, whether it's, and it's a combination of things, it's, um, you know, anti-vax, COVID doesn't exist, uh, or the lockdown's a bad idea. Um, you know, there's some fairly shady sort of conspiracies behind some of that, some shady right-wing groups. Um, it's not clear who's organising them and there isn't a clear uh, commitment to non-violence, perhaps, like we've seen with what we call the, the eco-pax movements, you know, the broader social justice and environment movements. And look, saying all this isn't to say that people shouldn't be protesting about lockdown, I think, and this is where it gets complicated. I mean, we're entitled to critique any policy. That's part of participatory democracy. Um, and there's things to be worried about, you know. Um, you know, this massive surveillance state that we've created um, to deal with the pandemic is concerning and we would need to know that it was going to be wound back you know after the immediate threat of the pandemic was gone we would need to know that we weren't going to just react this way every time a, a new sickness comes along um you know there's plenty to critique maybe in new south wales for example we could we could do a class-based critique about the way the pandemic has been implemented you know soft in the eastern suburbs hard in the western suburbs um you know so it's it's important 
that we still are open. You know, vaccination isn't necessarily safe. There are some risks. You know, it's important that these public debates can still occur. And the mere fact we disagree with people isn't a reason why they shouldn't protest. But I think the two problems I see with it, one is that it tends to be individualistically framed rather than common good framed. And secondly, um, what I was saying, that the, the flouting of the public health measures only increases the anxiety of the population that you're not you know, that you might spread the virus more by, by what you're doing. And, and so when you really think about that, it would be possible to protest the lockdown without breaking, necessarily breaching all of the public health measures. I mean, the gathering part of it, sure. But um, like the BLM protests did in Melbourne, you can still wear masks and you can still distance whilst holding a placard, assembling, speaking and protesting against something. So there would be ways to do it. The, the, the thing that upsets the public is, you know, the idea that these things might be super spreader events and, um, and that really frightens people. I mean, I recently on the ABC, I, I was trying to think of an example, you know, what, what would be a comparison to doing this? And I end up somewhat humorously saying, well, imagine if a bunch of alcoholics didn't like the drink driving laws. And so they had a drink drive in down the Pacific highway. Um, that would cause a hell of a lot of anxiety because the majority of the public think, well, we support the drink driving laws. We're really afraid of car accidents and we wouldn't like to see a lot of people actually flouting them. So look, there's times when you do flout the laws um, as part of your protest. But I think when there's a, when there is a national emergency that most people recognize, it's probably not a good time to go flouting those public health um, requirements, even if you don't completely agree with them. If the majority see them as important and are going to feel anxious at seeing them flouted, well, I think there's a problem. You're certainly not going to attract support. Yeah. I mean, I think myself, as I live in Coolangatta on the Queensland side and kind of experienced the whole uh, protests recently, and I think it's from a lot of people that I've spoken to, it's interesting that it can be kind of frustrating as someone who's watching, yeah, in the in the um, atmosphere of a pandemic, it is kind of scary. It's a, you're having 1,200 cases in New South Wales and these people who are supposed to be in lockdown in their house, you know, are out walking around and yelling and screaming without a mask on, not being, you know, separate. And I think particularly that it's a health issue that frightens people and in the local area, despite myself agreeing that the lockdown is very harsh, particularly on businesses and families in my local community, I don't think that the best way to go about it was the way that it went about. No, you, you don't want those plaguey hordes from New South Wales crossing your border. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, no, that's right. It's, it, it, yeah, it sort of turns in on itself, the fact that you're sort of breaching the very precaution and it's also the fact that other people are taking that precaution you know at, at, at their own cost so people are closing their businesses they're staying in their homes they've done it for two or three weeks and yeah. then they, people just go out and do that um yes it, it 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 makes people sort of not only anxious but also angry so you know and, and look when it comes to protest that doesn't work i mean the other thing i've noticed is that just blocking roads for the sake of blocking roads doesn't work in Australia. So that, that seemed to work in London for Extinction Rebellion. And so when Extinction Rebellion came to Australia, they went, oh, well, let's try that. 
um, and they started just sort of blocking some roads in Brisbane and it, the public really didn't buy it. So for better or for worse, the right to drive down the road and not be impeded by protest appears to be a fundamental human right in Australia. We'll stop for roadworks as long as they don't last for more than six minutes, but protest will make us hot under the collar. And, you know, and, and if you're part of a social movement and you're trying to bring about social change and get the support of the population, you do have to, you know, you do have to think about these things at times. Not everybody will always agree with you. Sometimes the majority won't agree with you. But if you're really angering people who would otherwise agree with you, that's a problem. And I think sometimes when you just, you know, hold up traffic, um, that happens. Um, similarly, a lot of some of the vegan protests in Melbourne in particular were having the same effect, blocking intersections or harassing um, diners in restaurants, you know, that serve meat and so on. I think people started to go, well, look, you know, we don't mind if you protest against the government, protest against the mining companies, protest against the bulldozers that are actually dropping the trees, protest against the trees, that, that the ships that are killing the whales. But when you start protesting against ordinary people, you're not likely to build support that way. And I think, as you said as well, it's a problem stemming from different issues. Like it's okay and well to say that it's for businesses and for, you know, separating families on either side of a border, but then it becomes anti-vax and it becomes anti-lockdown and conspiracy and against the government. And then there's 10 different ideas and no one knows what we're protesting for in the first place. Yes. Well, that is the problem. I mean, I mean, there's another article I'm writing about this for the Nimmin Good Times about one of the problems we have is that humans have an addiction to certainty. Um, we like to be certain about things. And unfortunately, the world doesn't always work that way. The world's a very complex place and there isn't always a right answer. And when an individual's deciding, should I get vaxxed, they might go, oh, there's a risk of blood clot. You know, I'm under 40, there's a risk of blood clotting. Um, it might be very small, but I'm afraid of that. Now, the individual is having to make that decision, but the individual doesn't know what side effects they'll get from a vaccination. And the individual also doesn't know how COVID will affect them. So they're in a position of uncertainty, and yet they're having to make a call because this moment in history is upon them. Um, and, and I think a lot of people don't cope with that. And so one of the reasons people rush for fundamentalism, for religion, for terrorism, for conspiracy, you know, for, for extreme beliefs is because they're wanting certainty. Um, and one of the things that I, I find a little bit odd, you know, there's good reasons to distrust government at times. There's good reasons to trust the big pharmacy corporations globally. You know, they've done some bad things and told us some fibs in the past. But the mere fact that you distrust one thing doesn't mean you then get to believe 150% in an alternative narrative that you find on YouTube. It's, um, you know, so one of the things I think when it comes to, you know, these issues around vaccinations and conspiracies is to try and calm everybody down and say, look, everybody, why don't you just try to sit with uncertainty for a while? Just try to say, I'm not the expert, I don't know. And that gets us to another thing, experts, you know. We, we seem to be not believing in experts anymore. But in, in fact, you know, if we are afraid of uncertainty, it's science and experts that have probably brought us the greatest safety and the certainty that we've been capable of achieving. But the thing about experts is they're never certain either because that's the nature of the scientific method to say, oh, well, all of the evidence suggests this, but of course we can't be completely sure. And again, a lot of, and, and that's been a problem with climate change and with vaccinations where 
a lot of people listen to a scientist or a doctor and then go, look, they're not even certain, see? And it's like, yeah, but that's part of the intellectual tradition of, of, of being sceptical, of being rigorous, of saying, well, all of, you know, all of the evidence suggests anthropogenic climate change is, is going to cause catastrophic effects you know, within the next 50 years. Um, we're not absolutely sure, but we're 97% sure. That, that bit of being 3% unsure, well, that's just science. Science, that's its rigour. It's always uncertain. But the public often don't understand that. And the problem is that the, the genuine expert will say, this is what the evidence suggests, but we can't be sure, because that's how they're trained to talk. And then your populist politician or your populist on YouTube will come out with really smooth sounding, really definite things. And that's where people get sucked in because it, it sounds so incredibly compelling when it's simplified um, and turned into a narrative and it sounds so difficult to understand when it's presented in its raw scientific detail. And then everybody becomes an expert. <laughs> well, look, this is a problem. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's, it's across the board in many ways. I mean, we, we first saw science denial with climate change and... It was funny because I used to say, oh, gee, you know, you'll trust your doctor, you trust your motor mechanic, but you won't trust a climate scientist. But I don't know, it, probably motor mechanics next because now we don't trust doctors either. Um, <laughs> so I don't know, next time the motor mechanics, I mean, I suppose some people don't trust their motor mechanic, I don't know. But um, I've found them mostly to be pretty honest. Uh, are we protesting about the right things? In this digital environment we're all existing in, how do we know what's truthful and important so that we can be positive activists? Well, we have, that's a big question. We have a bit of a problem there. I mean, I think the digital environment, um, particularly social media, is sending us all crazy. Um, and one of the ways it's doing that is it's, it's creating echo chambers. So, um, you know, no matter how marginal your belief or even your fetish is, you can go online and you can find a group of people who are going to confirm and enable that for you. Um, and this is what's happening to everybody. And, and the algorithms in social media actually do that. And so everybody's getting, what we're losing is consensus reality. And unfortunately, you know, there's no hard and fast definition of sanity in any given society. Sanity is effectively ultimately measured by consensus reality. The echo chamber effect of social media is breaking down consensus reality and everybody's hiving off into their own little communities that feed their own confirmation bias. Um, and so we are actually seeing a, a, a terrible breakdown of society um, and this lack of trust in experts because really it's our, it's our and, you know, we're speaking here in a university context, you know, it's our trust in education, it's our trust in expertise, it's our trust in people who've put, you know, their entire life into their PhDs on a virus in frogs, for example, that's really what certainty and progress and truth is sort of built on in our society. And, and if we all hive off into our social media echo chambers and start thinking that we can all be the experts on anything we choose and all we've got to do is find a few people to agree with us, uh, we are going into very dangerous territory. So, and, and I think that is what we're seeing. I'm not sure what we're going to do about that. 
Uh, I know myself, um, I've taken Facebook app off my phone. Maybe I was going down an environmentalist echo chamber, who knows? But um, I think I was still watching the ABC and, and, you know, reading enough academic literature to maybe not do that. But, but it's certainly good for any of our mental health, I think, to get away from, to understand the way those algorithms in social media work and the way they are hiving you into echo chambers is very important. Um, because we see a lot of, I mean, cancel culture is another place where, again, it's mostly well motivated, but people are getting echo chambered. So they, their beliefs are sort of becoming these, what I call purity spirals, where they get deeper and deeper and deeper into a particular sort of campaign and more and more and more intolerant of people who aren't as deeply into it as they are. Uh, and that, again, is causing a lot of, at least online, um, violence in, in the sense of people just being, you know, incredibly rude and, and, and offensive to each other. So, yeah, we, we do we do have some big crises running. You know, this, this post-truth world um, is a very great threat to our society. I'm, I'm sure of that. Australia is a democratic nation. How do you think that we're going with this on a state and federal level? And how is this different in our current state of emergency? How are we going as a democratic nation? Look, we've got some serious problems um, and states of emergency are one of them. There's a concept called state of exception, which is where, you know, you have shared values about what it means to live in a democracy. You have shared values about human rights, rights to protest, rights to privacy uh, and all of those things. And then you get put under a bit of pressure like, um, you know, the 9-11 terrorist attacks um, or war or a pandemic. Uh, and then there's this resort to what we call a state of exception, where you say, oh, look, this is an especially threatening situation. The normal processes of democracy are too slow, too inefficient, or they don't work properly, um, or the, you know, we're worried about organised crime um, and the normal principles of our criminal justice system are making it too hard for police to catch terrorists, pedophiles, whoever, drug dealers. Um, so we need to do something exceptional. But don't worry, it'll be temporary. Um, but it often isn't temporary. Now, it's interesting, you know, because the pandemic has been more of a transparent process in which governments have said, look, there's a health crisis, it's here, it's coming, it will overwhelm our hospitals, and we want you all to do these things. In effect, in a sense, with the pandemic, they've been they've levelled with us. They've told us what they want us all to do. They've asked for our voluntary cooperation. They've introduced some penalties for not cooperating, but by and large, it's based on a on a, on a transparent process and a, a a process of cooperation. But when it comes to things like anti-terror laws, uh, the powers of ASIO, the powers of secret policing, the ability to uh, interrupt people's um, electronic communications. I mean, New South Wales is the, one of the most electronically surveilled criminal jurisdictions on the planet, you know, in terms of phone tapping. But now we're moving to the point, you know, I mean, ASIO can disappear people, the media can't report on it. Uh, we've had rules preventing doctors speaking about what happens in overseas detention centres for immigration. Um, now we've got laws coming in to not only allow the security services to snoop and record your communications, but to actually um, impersonate you online and change your communications, which is taking us down a spooky line. Um, they could put people at very great risk by doing that, but 
it's getting closer to the line where it would be possible to frame a per person in a way that the person would never be able to prove their innocence. Um, so there's, you know, the ASIO powers, the anti-terrorism powers, these things were all brought in as an emergency, but they never went away. And, and that's one of the valid concerns people have with the pandemic powers is, you know, they brought in as emergency, but will they be taken away again? And the answer is they probably won't. They'll probably just sit in the background for the next pandemic. Um, but then we worry a lot about government surveillance, whereas actually corporate surveillance is completely out of control. You know, the digital frontier is a frontier like out of space or like the Wild West in the 1800s, where there aren't any rules. And corporations have entered that, um, given us mobile phones, given us social media, um, and we are all, whether we know it or not, complicit in making ourselves in, in our own surveillance. So quite apart from the surveillance the government engages in, Google, Apple, you know, all those, all those companies um, are surveilling our conversations, surveilling our choices. I mean, people are noticing that they mention, oh, I want to buy a new tent. And then bingo, ads for tents are popping up on their phone. This is real. This is happening. You know, as consumers, we are being absolutely surveilled. People are now calling this surveillance capitalism. It's when the government does it, we suddenly think it's, it's insidious and frightening, but the corporations have been doing it to us all along. I mean, every time you use your credit card, that's saying what you bought, where you were at the time. Um, that's creating an Akashic record of your consumer behaviour. You know, we worried a lot about the COVID app, um, but the credit card does almost that. It's been wonderful talking to you, Aidan. Thank you for your insights. I've learned a lot about activism and participatory democracy. And thank you to everyone who tuned in. I hope you learned something new too. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm.